welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Note Doctors. Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode where we are talking about voice students and what they need in music theory and and oral skills education. Before we get to our conversation, I do want to mention that we are planning a mailbag episode where we answer your messages, your emails. So if you have questions, comments for us, you can always reach us at Facebook. We have an Instagram account for Note Doctors Podcast, I think that's what it's called, or our email, which is notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com. So you can send us questions, comments, and we'll get back to you on a special episode later this spring. For our episode today, we have a delight. I think Jennifer Youngs constitutes as a delight. <laughs> I think she's just a delight. Totally. Um, Jennifer Youngs, who is a vocal professor um, and and good friend of ours, and sh- she comes and sits and chats with us about what uh, vocal performance students need in uh, music theory. So, uh, Ben, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Youngs. Sure, Paul. In the fall of 2020, Dr. Youngs joined the faculty of Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, where she teaches private voice, vocal pedagogy, and diction. Previously, Jennifer was an assistant professor and coordinator of vocal studies at Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas. She earned a Doctor of Musical Arts degree in performance and pedagogy, as well as a Master of Music degree in performance and opera from the University of North Texas and a Bachelor of Music degree in performance from the Conservatory of Music at the University of the Pacific. Her most recent appearance was as Armida and Handel's Rinaldo with the American Baroque Opera Company, and it was hailed as a standout from the Dallas Morning News. I ask students to do that all the time. If they have another instrument that they are proficient at, I ask them to do fingerings, you know, I ask them and, and they will sight read it perfectly because there's there's a physicality that is connected to intervals. There's a physicality and I think even their ear because they've been playing that instrument so long. Um, I think that's one of the reasons maybe too, kind of why singers go to hand signs. It's our physical representation of what's happening. I think that's one of the reasons the Guidonian hand, I mean, even going, going all the way back to the Guidonian hand, is that there was a physicality between, you know, the points of, uh, of intervals. And we, we don't have something physically that we can press or slide or, you know, things like that. So I think that this is our physicality of, that we gravitate to. So we have something similar to fingerings. So today, our very special guest is Jennifer Youngs. We're so excited to have you here, uh, former colleague, former kind of North Texan, right? Yes. And so we're super excited to talk with you uh, from where you're at now um, about um, what kind of, especially like voice students, voice performance students really need from their theory and kind of oral skills undergraduate classes. But before we kind of get into that, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about uh, how you found your place, how you found where you are right now and how you got there. And so tell us a little bit about kind of how you became a professional singer, how you became <laughs> a professor. And, and also, you know, at what age do you uh, begin experiencing hearing loss from singing all those high notes? <laughs> I know. Where do we start? Where do we start? So um, I was born and raised in outside of Kansas City, um, Kansas City, Kansas. And then my family moved to the Phoenix area. And that's where I went to high school. And then my high school choir took a senior trip and we were supposed to go to the Bay Area. But it also included um, the Stockton area, which is about an hour and a half east of San Francisco. And I ended up getting a call the night before we left, and my choir director said, there's going to be an opera specialist there that wants to do a master class. Will you sing for him? 
And I, yeah, I said, said, sure, yeah, I'll sing for him. So I ended up singing for um, this man, and he recruited me heavily. And so I ended up randomly getting um, getting recruited by the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. And that's where I ended up going to school for my undergrad and did a lot of singing and and just had a really, really great experience there. And then my husband and I met while I was in my undergrad, and we got married. And then after I finished my undergrad, I thought um, we would put him back into school. And that kind of took us all over the country. So I stepped away from music for a little bit after... um, uh, after my undergrad and was a stay-at-home mom for the majority of my 20s. And then when we got the opportunity to move down to North Texas, um, that was the first place that we lived where I felt that the teachers and the instruction were going to be strong enough. So I auditioned for the University of North Texas, and that's where I ended up uh, getting both my master's and my DMA there. And and then in that meantime, I started working for Texas Women's University, um, where I ended up as the the coordinator for uh, vocal studies. And then from there, I took a job at Brigham Young University. So that's where I'm at now. I'm uh, here in Utah, um, teaching private voice and diction and uh, pedagogy. So that's what I do. That's like the real short version of how I got here. (laughs) That's great. And so what was your own kind of music theory experience when you were in undergrad? So my music, this is going to be so fun and it'll probably wrap me out so bad. Um, But uh, I really had wonderful music theory teachers um, in my undergrad. My first music theory teacher was a jazzer, and he was a jazz pianist, which probably made it more difficult. I remember him building chords at the piano, and they were complex jazz chords, and he would just, he had a very monotone voice, (laughs) and he would just play this really crazy uh, complex chord and then just say, can't you hear the fa? I'm like, no, I can't hear the fa. So it was just, I just remember, I just remember struggling, you know, so badly. But I will kind of going back, I have to give a lot of credit to my high school choral directors. Um, because uh, to get us started in music theory, we did three lines of sight singing every day. And then on Fridays, we had dictation. And so even starting in high school, we were getting, you know, just really basic part writing. I think by the time we were seniors, we were doing two-part uh, part writing, but I cannot tell you how much that helped the transition for me going from high school into college. And so that helped and quite a bit. And then I also had in my undergrad, one of the composition professors was my, uh, another one of my theory professors. And he was from, uh, he was French Canadian and always would say, you must ear with your ears. <laughs> so he always has, he always had such great, great things to say. But um, you know, between that and and oral skills, our choral director taught oral skills, and so part of our sight singing, we were um, solfeging the Bach two part inventions. And so we were singing through those and um, things like that. I and he also was. Um, a huge follower of Kodai. So we were doing all of the Kodai and then the two-part inventions and things like that. I think it really established such a great... such a great basis for me as far as um, when it came to theory. Now, I'll confess I was not a great theory student, but <laughs> but I do recognize, especially now, I do recognize what a, what a great foundation that I had, both um, coming from a wonderful choral program in, in high school and then through my undergrad. It really set me up for wonderful things later. So, Yeah, That's I've heard great. that with a lot of my students. The background you have in high school can set you up mm-hmm. one way or the other, for better or I for com- worse. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And and coming, you know, in Arizona, there was such a wonderful um, history and such a wonderful program there that they really were doing great things to help us set that up for sure. Yeah, you know, one fantastic. thing I find myself saying to my students a lot of the time is, 
people that come in, they don't have necessarily any um, preparation from high school. They think they're somehow worse at music theory. And I kind of have to sit them down and say, listen, you're not bad at music theory. You just don't have as much knowledge coming in. You don't have prerequisite knowledge that other people have. That doesn't Agreed. make you more or less, you know, equipped. I mean, that makes you super uh, talented, super able to absorb everything that we're talking about from a blank slate. You don't have any bad habits, which is good, you know, but don't feel like you can't do it because you don't have the background that other people I have. I love that's, that. That's something to overcome yeah. for, a lot of, for a lot of students coming in. I don't know if... You know, you all have experienced the same thing. But I've definitely experienced that. People think that they can't do it because they just don't have some prerequisite knowledge that other students have. Yeah. And I think that's such that a is so That's so wonderful. And especially having been at several institutions, I've seen the entire gamut, you know, with that. And being at, at Texas Women's, we had such a variety of backgrounds um, from really well-prepared students to students that, you, just like you said, Ben, that they're they just don't have the the previous knowledge but you're right no i think that that's a really great approach to take to it yeah i think that's really good um i'm a singer too and so i came to college you know as a as a young singer but i also have always been an instrumentalist so i started on piano at a really young age and i started on horn at like eight or nine years old oh my goodness and so um i don't think that i'm maybe the average vocal student coming into (laughs) coming into college because i had a lot of theory (laughs) training i had a lot of theory training and you know i had played in youth orchestra and things like that had had to transpose um so i know a lot of my singer students sometimes feel very comfortable in aural skills and very uncomfortable in written theory. Absolutely. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about like the average vocal student? Who are they? What are they looking for? What makes that a challenge for them? The written theory class versus aural skills class, those kinds of things. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think just like you said, Jennifer, the idea that you had experience in multiple different instruments mm-hmm. just puts you so far ahead. I can't even, I can't even imagine what a leg up that would be, you know. But if we, if you have an, um, if you have an average vocalist, oftentimes, this is one of my soapboxes of many. <laughs> um, but one of the things I think that happens if you come from an instrumental background versus um, a, a vocal, I wish we could just put in a whole blanket of we're all instrumentalists, but there does seem to be this divide between instrumentalists and vocalists. If you think about it, I tell my pedagogy students this all the time. Oftentimes, as singers, we come about, uh, we come to our instrument in such a different way than instrumentalists. When my son started on the trumpet, I remember him coming home, and he only could make sounds for about two weeks um, on his mouthpiece. That was it. That that was all he could do. He that was all he was allowed to do was make mm-hmm. noise on his mouthpiece. And then they had to go through the parts of the instrument and they had to go through, there was just, I think back to beginning piano too. We think about the parts that make up the instrument. We think about um, posture. We think about all these things. Because our voices are organic and we have them from birth, I think that Mm -hmm. we come about it from such a different way. We're already, probably by the time they join a choir or um, even come into some kind of structured musical experience they've already experimented with their own voice maybe to a high degree to a high Mm -hmm. level and so sometimes that voice can function really really well um that was my case my parents to their credit um had me play cello before they put me in choir Mm -hmm. they said we always knew that you could sing and whenever you could you know whenever you started to do that they would be fine so i played cello poorly um (laughs) poorly until about halfway through high school and i remember when i went to go on audition for choir I couldn't read treble clef um so I would I would do all of the sight singing from the bass clef Uh, that is such an anomaly. Is that funny? Not a soprano who can't read either. treble clef. Yeah. <laughs> a soprano that couldn't read treble clef for yeah. years. Yeah, for years. So, um, but one of the things that ended up happening was um, 
my ear and my ability to parrot or to imitate was really high. It was really, really good because I didn't have these basic um, skills to fill it in. So I think that oftentimes singers, they can walk even into a higher, you know, into college, into a higher institution of learning and still function at a really high level with their instrument, maybe not with these skills underneath. And I think that mm. oftentimes um, singers, singers come to this um, being able to almost mask or hide that they don't have those skills yet. And um, I think that that's where that ends up happening. I also think the other part of this question, I also think that in the classroom, um, when, when students are in choir or early choirs, to be able to teach those skills and still have a deadline of I have to put on a choir, I have to put on a show, I have to be able to do these types of things, then I think oftentimes choral directors will take the easy route and just play the, the line for them rather than helping them learn how to figure out the line themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think that there's some corners that are cut as far as teaching them how to be musicians uh, rather than just to parrot. But I bet you, uh, do you guys ever do uh, singbacks where you play you know, five or six pitches? Mm-hmm. I bet those singers are nailing those oh yeah without even thinking they're like Uh, you know like exactly exactly so our ears are sharp Uh, our ears and our ability Mm -hmm. to be able to regurgitate or sing back or any of those things um but i i think to a you know um to a discredit to the student in in high school you have this two-edged sword where people have to put on uh, on a choral concert they have they have these deadlines that they have to they have to make and so oftentimes they know that they can expedite the learning of a piece if they send tracks or if they mm-hmm. send uh, if they just play the line instead of figuring out uh, figuring it out so i talk a lot mm-hmm. i speak a lot to my um, music educators that are in my pedagogy class about letting the students struggle let them struggle a little bit longer and see if they can figure it out before you play it for them mm-hmm. so, yeah we just this morning i was i taught Um, theory ped this morning and I was saying that one of the goals one of our goals as teachers is our students independence from us that that. like by the time that they leave you they should have some ability to self-assess and self-correct and things like that yes and that if you always are the one like that we have to teach them that skill as well essentially and I was like that's why Long ago in the oral skills class, I stopped modeling. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I never model. I don't sight sing with them. I barely sing at all (laughs) when I'm teaching oral skills because if they will just do what I do, right? It's a crutch. It's a huge crutch. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't even, I try if we're doing some sort of singing exercise to just give the original pitch and that is it on the piano or with my voice. And then after that, everything they have to get from like, okay, well, if you can't find that note, let's go back to do where so, mm-hmm. you know, helping them navigate those things. Yeah, that's how my- you become like, autonomous you yes, know in, yes. in learning music i agree with that yeah my undergrad the Arl, the choral director um that taught aural skills um we had to do everything from a tuning fork so all the freshmen had that. tuning forks around mm. their neck <laughs> and you could tell all the freshmen and sophomores you know that they were still in aural skills because we literally had a tuning fork on our person all the time. So we never touched the piano. We never, we had to get all of our starting pitches from the A, you know, and figure out, just figure out where we were going to start. Things. Oh, I forgot about that. I, (laughs) I think I forgot about that until I showed, uh, I showed my pedagogy class, all the ridiculous ways you can hear a tuning fork. Do you, uh, did you ever try it? Like you put it on your head or you can, Oh no, you haven't tried this. (laughs) No. No. Oh my goodness. I, I, I will send them to you. So you can, (laughs) this is what happens when you only teach our skills with a tuning fork. (laughs) 
<laughs> all the freshmen figure out, okay, so I'll, I'll run down the funny ones really quick. So you can obviously hit the tuning fork and you can put the ball of the tuning fork between your teeth and it will radiate in your head so you can hear it in your head. Oh and gosh. then... And then you can put it on the top of your skull too. You can hear the note on the top of your skull. But then you also can put, stick your finger in your ear and put the ball of the tuning fork on the end of your elbow and you can hear it through. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, now I want to get a tuning fork and play I'm all totally of it. I don't even have one. I don't even own one. No, no I don't no, think I do anymore either. Uh, the really good ones? Oh my gosh. This is what happens when freshmen have too much time on their hands. But the really good one is you can do your your finger in your ear, touch your elbow to your kneecap, and then put the tuning fork on your ankle bone. And you can <laughs> What an incredible piece of technology this is. Right. Your body becomes the amplifier, right? Yes. Like giant resonator. <laughs> Yes, I'm telling you, we had him on shoestrings around our neck. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That, that is great. great. That is great. Yeah. I might try that because I was actually just the other day talking to one of my colleagues about maybe we need to have all of our oral school students learn bass guitar so they can hear the bass lines. But having everyone have a bass guitar is a little expensive. But maybe oh, just a tad. Could be good. <laughs> well, and yeah, and just working out how much of interval recognition, yeah. you know, if you've got an A, but you have to start on an F or, you know, things like that. And then to audiate the entire, not only switch to F, but then you have to, you know, audiate F major, things like that. So it really did a lot um, as far as that process and, and being able to recognize those intervals, which come in handy. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so yeah, we've talked sure. quite a bit about oral skills, but what about music theory? What types of kind of concepts, you know, are most mm. applicable for for our voice or our vocal performance majors? And maybe you can um, throw in some that are least applicable too. Least? Oh gosh, I don't want it. I don't. Wanna... <laughs> we love hot takes. That's we so. love the least. We the do, least we do. favorite. Um, you know, what is really funny is that so many of these things, I, you just have time to reflect on them as you stay in music longer. And I tell my students all the time, even though I have an opportunity to sing opera, the stuff that I get the most hired to do is, um, early music and new music. And thinking about early music, I can't tell you how much theory, um, helps me in ornamentation and thinking about how to construct or um, thinking of different different ways to go about ornamentation and things like that. So it helps in the creativity when I have to be more improvisatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely helps. And then in new music, I'm telling you, uh, going back to those tone rows and being able to sing back things and things like that. But... Um, I think it helps so much. Paul, you kind of mentioned as far as tuning to the bass, I that is so absolutely instrumental. And being able to listen and tune, you know, tune to the bass and being able to pick that out. Um, that's even even now, you know, working on that Lord Nelson mask. If I'm able to play the bass line and then sing the coloratura over it, um, you know, that just helps so much. But for me, as far as recognizing um, really good voice leading and ways that I can be more artful, um, that's one of the biggest ways that I've been able to use theory. I'm not a great person at, you know, uh, really thinking about chord construction or anything like that, unless I am doing new music and I have to find random pitches, then I can really zone in on that. Like, well, I, I am singing the third or I'm singing the fourth or how I'm pulling how I oftentimes in new music, you have to pull pitches out of the air. And Mm -hmm. so being able to be able to kind of recognize where things are going or how they're constructed just shortens the amount of time it takes to learn pieces, which also makes you marketable. So that's true. That's very true. That's great. The thing is that what you just said means we have to keep it all because you basically just said that we need to teach them counterpoint and voice leading and like 12 tone sesh 
set theory. So, well, you know, <laughs> this has been another one of my soapboxes this year is that sometimes in, in programs that are really concentrated in opera, sometimes they live their entire life and all their repertoire is in the long 19th century. And it's interesting mm-hmm. to tell the students that if you want to make a living, if you want to pay your rent um, by doing this, you have to make yourself marketable. That means be comfortable with any kind of style, any kind of thing that's asked of you, especially early on in your career. So yes, Mm -hmm. as much as I sometimes loathe sitting in those classes... And because it was, I wasn't great at it. I, I didn't feel like I was really great at it. But I, I recognize now that it gave me the foundation to be marketable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the things that I've experienced just playing. I mean, I play a lot of gigs on the trumpet in addition to doing theory. And a lot of the things you mentioned I've done in the last year on gigs. You know, like we did this thing in the summer. This land is your land for a 4th of July. And the director says, okay on the second and the third time through everyone just go crazy just add in whatever you'd like to do on top and i'll keep going on the melody and then he said let's give it a whirl and then i was the only one that was adding anything the entire rest of the <laughs> just played their part again and i thought well where were all the embellishments and i'm looking around and they're like well it's gonna take us a little while i'm gonna write this out you know and i'm thinking oh my goodness she should be able to just improvise this you know but it At comes up on the, on the job oh, uh, yes. quite a bit. You know, just yes. add some basic embellishments to something, whether it's early music or, or something that's pretty, you know, standard tonal, I guess. You know, even that could be something simplistic. Um, yeah, very much so. so. Yeah, totally, totally. Oh, I relate to that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because my jazz colleagues, they said we should give serialism the axe. Um, but maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't give it the axe quite yet. A few people know. have said that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of grudges out there. Lately. Yeah. <laughs> not a lot of fans. Not a lot of fans. I love it. So the, uh, uh, to come to kind of one of my pet peeves with singers, I'm going to just admit it. I'm going to own it right now. Something I'm working through is that they don't pay attention to rhythm. Why is that? You already mentioned kind of the issue of like learning music by rote, but um, why is why is that an area of consistent consternation for so many singers? Is this they, is this struggle with just what what the tempo is or what measure we're in or what the rhythm is and how to do that? Um, so what's up with that? Help me out. Oh my goodness. If I miss anything in a rehearsal, I literally just say, I'm a soprano. I don't count. Like I really, I use the same thing. And I, I, I'll say things like, we just feel it. We just, we just feel it. Yes. Theorists don't feel, Jen. I I know. You, you callous, unfeeling. (laughs) No, you know what is, what would be so funny too? I think it would be really fascinating to see which of the voice parts would be the most egregious uh, with this too. I have a suspicion of which uh, voice part would be the most (laughs) egregious. Um, But I, again, I think it's one of those things kind of starting off with those basic principles that might be fed to them instead of them learning how to pull it apart and and be able to figure out rhythm um, on their own. Um, I... I, I I can't tell you. I know that this it's a problem. I know it's a serious problem, um, but I I can't really tell you like where it stems from, other than maybe we just are not required to do it as early. Um, but I will say I will say um, the the quickest, the fastest method to remedy that is singing new works where they don't have a recording to go against or they don't have um, something that they can parrot at all. Mm-hmm. Man, uh, though that has taught me more about how to be a precise musician mm-hmm. um, and to go after that is, is going after new music where it's required of you. Yeah. Um, I wonder if singers just um, 
until it's required, until it puts them on the line. They don't consider it to be important or um, of a priority. Uh, so until, I, don't, I always tease my students, until there's a threat of public humiliation, uh, <laughs> that we may, not, we may not get that under control. But when I started doing, it, it wasn't until I started my master's that I really was doing new music. And man, that, it, it requires you to be honest. It requires you to be honest in how you learn it and how you perform it. And then also when you have a living composer that's sitting right there, I mean, I, I can fudge on Mozart and he won't, you know, he won't come after me. At least I don't think so. <laughs> but there, I feel a, a tremendous pressure when I have um, living composers that I'm working with because I want to be respectful and I want to be honest with them, especially when they're sitting right there. So the, learning new music, um, I, I'm wondering if you could incorporate some of that into, you know, uh, into your works or whatnot. Maybe if the students even come up with a melodic line and they have to, you know, give it to a friend and they have to learn it or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, totally. But I, I recognize that, you know, rhythm is definitely an issue and it's definitely a problem. Um, but I think it kind of goes back to that idea that for so long it's just been handed to them. Yeah. Like, oh, that's not right. Let's fix it. Let's it goes like this, you know. And so uh, also, I think. Yeah. I also yeah. wonder about um, when I have students, you know, audiate or, okay, you can look at your, uh, look mm. at a, a set melody, and the choir kids instantly do start doing this. Yeah. They're doing hand signs, right? Yes. And without, and they'll do it in a steady tempo, right? Even yeah. though it could be in 6-8, and the notes are not happening in rhythm, right? And so mm -hmm. how does, a, so like, it's like when a, a vo voice student looks at the page it's almost like the rhythm is not foundational it's the solfege right that's like that the heart of it right is I, that i would a, a, i would agree I, I would I, agree yeah. i th i think that i think that we just revert to what feels the best and we can sing you know we can sing and so mm -hmm. i think that we we go to that i recognized a long time ago that rhythm was my uh, downfall and it was my weakest link and so when i'm pulling a new piece apart i actually fix rhythm first um, but it takes a while for students to recognize what their strengths and what their weaknesses are without just reverting to what they're good at. Mm. And so I Very think that true. that's a that's a comfort level. And especially if they're in class and they have to do it quick, of course, they're going to go to their, you know, they're going to go straight to what they know mm. and what they believe. And so, um, but that took to say, me a long time. Yeah, Jennifer. Well, like true confession, <laughs> when I audiate. I audiate arrhythmically for the most part. Arrhythmically, really? Yeah. Yeah, if I'm sight singing something, and I think, and now this is where I don't know if it's that I don't, singing rhythms are just easier as well. So I think that's a component of this that like, as a French horn student, by high school, we were playing insane rhythms. Oh, yes. And, you know, have things that are heavily syncopated or where you had to infer like swing or, you know, yes. things like yes. that. And so, um, you know, all of those things were kind of built in. And choir music, vocal music even, solo vocal music is often just not as rhythmically complex. It is not as consistently rhythmically complex is what I would say. I would agree instrumental with that. Music. And so vocalists just have less exposure and experience, I think, sometimes with heavily syncopated mm -hmm. rhythms or changing meters or things like that. So I don't know if it's a product of like rhythm has always been felt easy for me. And so if it's a product of like, I got to make sure I'm getting all these intervals right or I'm, I'm getting all these notes correct and the rhythm's going to be fine. Like, I don't have to worry <laughs> about that. I don't or if because when you said that, I was like, I mean, I, I do this for a living. Like I teach sight singing for a living and I don't typically do a steady, like I'm not really, I'm getting. You're not audiating in tempo, right? Well, or if I am hmm. incorporating the rhythm, 
I'm not I'm not really doing it in a tempo because I'm going to stop and fix in my head the spots that are hard. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm doing that with pitches. So if I'm audiating something and I realize like, oh, I I audiated the wrong note, I'm going to stop and fix that. So I'm not going to be like practicing it in rhythm. Maybe there's something innate there. I don't know. I don't know. Totally. I'll make a confession as well. It's confessions day. (laughs) I, I will say I cannot audiate arrhythmically. Like I will always audiate in time. In time. But I will always audiate with fingerings, with trumpet fingerings. Oh, Mm. yes. If you take away my hands, I become way less good at sight singing. Um, and I've told my students this in class, that if you watch me sing something in class and you look down at the side of my pants, I will be doing the trumpet fingerings of the tune that we're singing I all ask, the time. So, I ask yeah. students to do that all the time. If they have another instrument that they are proficient at, I ask them to do fingerings. You know, I ask them and I, I've had trombone players and things like that, and they will sight read it perfectly because there's there's a physicality that is mm-hmm. connected to intervals. There's a physicality, and I think even their ear because they've been playing that instrument so long. Um, I think that's one of the reasons, maybe too, kind of going back to Paul's comment, why singers go to hand signs. It's our physical representation of what's happening i think that's one of the reasons the guidonian hand i mean even going going all the way back to the guidonian Mm -hmm. hand is that there was a physicality between you know the points of uh of intervals and we we don't have something physically that we can press or Mm -hmm. slide or you know things like that so i think that this is our physicality of that we gravitate to so we have something similar to fingerings but i've seen that happen time and time again pianists trumpet players flute players if if they're having a hard time sight reading or even if they're in lessons and they're struggling with um the intervals of a measure or something i'll I'll just say can you use your fingerings and try it again usually it's fixed on the first go round if they use fingerings so yeah yeah it definitely circles back as you say to kind of the original point which is like well what then are the vocalists doing to audiate or how do we actually take this printed thing and internalize that there's so many different thought processes going on within yes. like one given aural skills class you know it's almost yes. hard to like individualize that process because even within trumpets or even within choir even in the orchestra they're all doing different things to actually internalize that that melody so that's a challenge like that's a challenge of teaching teaching ear training and and sightseeing that comes up every semester it's just every, it's always there yes you know? all the time well and i think also i think pulling those layers back just like we've been talking about about how we go about things i think so students can see that there are multiple different ways that you can go about learning a piece and and, and internalizing a piece i think pulling back the curtain and showing students that there's more than one way to do this and all of them can be effective. It's just what is your pattern? What is going to be your quickest mm-hmm. way to artistry? What is your quickest way to getting to that ending product? But they can look really different. I mean, all, mm-hmm. all of them can look so different and that's okay. That's totally fine. I've been really intrigued to see that some students will guard how they practice. They don't want to expose how they practice. And I'm very mm-hmm. much like, I don't care how you get it done as long as it gets done. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. And so getting the work, there's no, there's no shame in how the work gets done as long as it's getting done. So. Right. And that they're practicing in a way that is helping them rather than hurting them or building bad habits or not preparing yeah. them for the assessment or they get Absolutely. into the outcome. That can be another Absolutely. problem. Yeah. No. Well, I still... I, I feel a little bit better but uh, about, about rhythm and singers, but it's, it's something, it's a challenge. But um, I think you're absolutely right with the solfege and the, the, the kind of the uh, kind of the physicality, physicality of, it. of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, think, I'm sitting here thinking now if I was holding my horn and I was audiating, I would never do it without rhythm. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah, because you have to press but the But when I'm keys, looking right? to sight sing something, what I do, it's not arrhythmic, that's not really the right word, but I'll like, so let's say it's like 
a dotted rhythm. I'm keeping like short, long relationships as I'm going, but I, I'm speeding up parts that are easy and slowing down parts where I have to, you know, I'm doing mm-hmm. all of that kind of. So yes. it's not really a rhythmic, but the rhythm is like secondary in a sense to getting those other relationships right. in place, I think. But on That's horn, I would never do that. I would never, ever do that. So I don't know. There, there must be something about either how we're trained as singers versus instrumentalists or what the music is like. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I would, I would never not audiate the rhythm. When I, if I was sitting here with my horn, that would be a whole different thing. Do you think it has something to do with, um, I mean, obviously instrumentalists have conductors and they're uh, of a band mm. orchestra, but is the role of the choir director in expressing the rhythm more, more powerful or stronger to the choir than an orchestra director is to an orchestra? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I think it would depend on the conductor themselves, right? Because yeah. mm-hmm. I've had conductors that I've been in front of that I think more than an actual beat, they're doing interpretive dance. And <laughs> so yes. I, I yeah. think there's yep. a nictus in there. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. But I've also had other conductors that are extremely rhythmic and, uh, you know, partly to try to keep a whole ship going, you know, especially in opera. Mm. If you really think that even your singer and the pit are are split, I mean, vi- visually even, mm-hmm. and to keep that whole ship in line, those oftentimes can tend to be very, very clear and rhythmic conductors mm-hmm. um, when they definitely have to keep a pit and, you know, and a singer together. And so, I don't know. I think it would have to depend on the on the importance that the conductor feels about, you know, rhythmic, yeah. hmm. rhythmic integrity, I guess, if you want to call right. it that. Right. Hmm. Well, I think there's more independence of line in instrumental music. Oh. So like, it's more likely oh, yeah. that the horns are doing something different than the trumpets who are doing something different than the flutes, than the clarinets. You have a lot more like, you have to be maybe a little more independent because your conductor cannot possibly give 25 instruments all of their rhythms. Whereas in choir, often, even if like the men are doing something different than the women, that, than the women, <laughs> that's still only two different kind of ideas happening at once. It's mm-hmm. rare. It does happen, but it's rare that like all four parts or eight parts are doing different, totally different things. Mm, that's so maybe it's point. that. Yeah, it's all the homophony, right, in, mm-hmm. in the choral yeah. kind of setting. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. When we, when I was in music ed at Towson, I designed a, a rhythm lesson based on the beginning of a Brian Balmage's tune, and I had picked six football players where the rhythms would articulate the names of the football players. So it was only the first eight bars of the tune, but there were six different rhythmic patterns that had to be articulated by different sections of the ensemble. And I don't know, I, I don't have, honestly, a ton of experience with a lot of choral music. That's probably one of the, you know, failings of music theory in general. Mm. But my whole lesson was, like, about just the rhythmic lines, like, making sure that everyone was counting their independent rhythmic line, you know. That I was going to say, if you gave them six independent rhythmic lines, you already lost the singers. <laughs> <laughs> and football players. And really? football yeah. players to boot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this, this was like me in undergrad. So you can, you can give a flashback there. Two confessions Come on, we have, today from me. We have heart palpitations if we have to voice cross, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. What a fun ex- what a fun exercise though to think about that independence and if you had a you know if you had a role to do I I find that you know I find more of that autonomy uh, autonomy in opera especially um opera finales you know mm-hmm. you have a lot of your own squawking that you have to do mm-hmm. and interjections and the yeah. things like that. I find that in opera finales a lot. But Again, that's super rare, you know, mm. if you're going to if you're going to be doing that much independence. Um, I don't know. I also kind of thinking about that, that idea, too, is um, 
in an orchestral situation, how many times are you counting rests until you have to come in? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just big chunks, you know, yeah. just big chunks of, of mm-hmm. silence. I think that hones in your skills as far as like mm-hmm. staying, staying focused and staying, you know, um, staying hooked up. We, I remember one time there was a horrible entrance that I had to make while I was on stage. Um, and I finally, it was such a bad entrance and I was missing it so many times. And so I found out that between, between my last, um, cutoff and that next tricky entrance, there were 17 counts and hallelujah, we're not miked as opera singers because I was supposed to be in this party and I'm walking around talking to like talking to everyone going one, <laughs> two, three, four. And I found out that I had 17 counts in between. So I literally on stage would kind of turn up stage and talk to everybody, but be counting like audibly. Brilliant. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six. I love that. I, it's great. Oh, it was so yeah. funny. And then everyone just kind of looks at you as like, don't mess me up. <laughs> <laughs> they all start counting at different different oh, rates. No, like, oh no! no. <laughs> oh, that's great. No. Well, that's a great segue to our kind of our next question because uh, you mentioned opera and opera finales that have all these kind of wonderful contrapuntal, you know, uh, lines, things like that. Um, that is one of the areas that. Is I think it's getting a little bit better in some of our contemporary theory books, but some definitely, I mean, thinking back to my own theory education, I don't think we ever looked at vocal music. Certainly we never looked at an aria. Maybe we looked, we looked at, you know, maybe a Schubert or a Schumann art song. That was sure. basically it. So uh, it was mostly, you know, piano music, maybe string quartets and things like that, uh, but a lot of instrumental music. So one of our kind of interests, I think, as, as a group is to try to expand you know, the musical examples that we're exposing our students to. And so what, you know, t- what types of musical compositions would you encourage theory teachers to incorporate into or more into their, uh, their theory curriculum? And you really, I, I mean, it's been a hot second since I've looked at these textbooks, but you really don't have much beyond one leader, like one Schubert song or a Schumann song? I would say art song is like the only type of vocal music the students are generally exposed to we Not get or maybe popular uh, Not a whole lot there is um uh actress cherubino uh his her, her aria in um uh marriage of figaro is in is in the clandending marvin for um mm-hmm. but um that's in a section on actually vocal music but that's a new chapter um, mm-hmm. And is like it really? most theory books don't even have a chapter on vocal music. Well, or they'll have Bach chorales, but with the text removed, it's not. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look like vocal music anymore, mm-hmm. which is a real shame because yeah, the text is valuable. You don't want them singing in German? Like, give that a whirl? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't write the books. <laughs> we didn't write the books. Do you know what's so interesting, Paul? You do such a great job in incorporating um, songs that they hear on the radio. I remember hearing students that they said so many Katy Perry songs were ruined because of your class and things mm. like that, you know. Yes. But there's, I think that students don't realize how much uh, popular opera tunes have infiltrated into our, you know, everyday use. How many... How many commercials or how many, uh, you know, scenes in other movies will use the Lock My Flower duet? I mean, mm-hmm. that one's used yeah. a ton. Um, I even remember um, uh, the habanera from Carmen is even used in the, in the movie mm-hmm. Up as he's coming down, <laughs> you know, as he's coming down the stairs and things like that. I think that so many of these kind of greatest hits, you could do both... Um, choral or kind of opera choruses too. I mean the um, the anvil chorus would, mm. was such a, a popular mm. one and and definitely gets used in um, used in in lots of our contemporary movies and and commercials and things like that. I think if they had some of those kind of greatest hits in uh, in their in in the theory books i also kind of think what a what a wonderful purpose it would serve as if they want to continue their work in a master's and a doctoral program i think sometimes we get really pigeonholed and 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 kind of have blinders on to our own repertoire 
and we forget that there's other you know that there's other things out there but i think the biggest thing would be to start with some of those some of those um, kind of greatest hits uh, that they would recognize anyway. Um, And so there would be this familiarity uh, with it and things like that. I think, too, uh, even in opera, you could talk, you could speak so much to rhythm as they were um, thinking about exoticism and things like that, where they were trying to pull in um, rhythms, whether it's Turkish rhythms in Mozart operas or if it's um, it's something that was supposed to portray another nationality, those vehicles were used as instantaneous recognition of the character on stage. And so you could easily, you know, talk about differentiation. Even in Carmen itself, that kind of bolero rhythm that is used, all it, it lends itself to the how exotic Carmen was, and that attraction of, of the because she was mysterious and um, and from you know a different uh, different type of people. So. I think that there's lots of ways that you, if you did a little research as far as the background and the use of the music in opera, um, even down to the language, you probably this would probably be out of the purview for you guys, but there's even times when we use particular dialects to portray socioeconomic um, mm. status on stage or things like that. But going back to those ideas with music theory, I think the use the use of rhythm. I also really appreciated one of my colleagues at one point um, said that he loves. He was a musicologist, but uh, he said that he loved using opera because other than other than pianists, it would incorporate everyone in the room, mm. singers, instrumentalists, um, uh, and and conductors, you know, if they're going into conducting, it, it literally would unify everybody in the room. So whether you pulled in a full score, um, make those singers look at the horn line and can you transpose this? This is what they have to do, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. But I think there's lots to be said and, and lots of uses that you could use for opera. Um, or maybe giving really a simple exercises of ornamentation and how they can use their voice leading and maybe some you know rules about that and things like that but I think that there definitely could be a lot of ways that operatic music could be used as a vehicle to uh, further enhance their their theoretical skills yeah I love that because um, it it's about showing them that hey the music that you're listening to or performing is actually applicable because you know it, it goes it's basically about representation and we've talked absolutely. about that about pop music right but absolutely with opera as well like if they're not seeing those arias or any of that music in their theory class well i'm not going to bring my theory knowledge into this because it clearly doesn't apply because i've never looked at it but like i agree and so that invites them to think hey I can bring my theory and my skills into this because we looked at that Mozart opera or we looked at that Verdi, or Verdi aria or whatever. Um, and also the text painting is really cool because then you can oh, yeah. connect the cool chords that they're using with those different words. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really wonderful connection too there. Well, I just, I'm, and I'm still learning these things. I just, you, you guys probably know um, the Schubert Gretchen am Spinnrad. It's kind of that quintessential song that started the whole German leader tradition. That's, in a big air quotes, but, (laughs) but, um, I just learned this week I was watching, um, I was, oh, this is so random. I was watching a video on spinning yarn, um, actually from the spinner's wheel and things like that. And the person that was doing this little instructional video about, um, spinning on the spinning wheel actually said that, um, young girls, this is sometimes as young as seven, eight, nine would start learning these, learning how to spin on a spinning wheel, but they would sing songs in order for the spinning wheel to maintain, um, maintain the right amount of speed. So the yarn would stay consistent. Hmm. And that made me think of Gretchen in when she stops and when she stops, you know, um, you know, and she sings that big old thing. And then the piano has to start up again. Uh-huh. But the idea of that the pianist has to maintain 
they have to maintain this steady, steady rhythm in order for the yarn to be consistent. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so nerdy. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, even things uh-huh. as far as like uh, uh, talking about text painting and talking about this idea, I even I'm still learning things about how we can make how we can make art song more consistent and more you know more believable. But I I thought that was such a yeah. wonderful tidbit as far as historically these young girls would sing songs in or at the spinning wheel mm-hmm. together in order to make sure that the spinning wheel stayed at the right tempo to make the yarn consistent as they were putting it as yeah. they were spinning it i thought that was so cool hmm. i love that i love yeah. that yeah yeah it's just making those connections to those older pieces that like hey these are by real humans you know these are that, that there's these real kind of uh, context that these songs come from oh and yeah these histories right or and, even yeah. playing or you know playing uh if you've ever played the a, a clip of a, an actual hurdy-gurdy and then mm. you know and then study delayaman and yeah. how how he portrays that just that haunting uh, that haunting connection between a real a real instrument mm-hmm. and what's that you know supposed to portray or i was just talking to a student about you know what happens in the right hand of um barber's a monk and his cat from um uh, hermit songs a hermit songs yeah. you know when it has beauty beauty it has like in the right hand that's supposed to be the cat stepping on the keys <laughs> mm-hmm. uh-huh you yeah. know, so it's supposed to be, and and those kind of things of of just figuring out how we can bring real life into, you know, into our music. I I think is it's super fun, and you can right. see your students just light up when they make that connection, mm-hmm. and you can just see those wonderful connections. It just makes it more personal. Yeah, yeah, that richness that that comes across uh, that you don't necessarily get when you analyze a sonata or something like that, you know, that extra narrative is that draws them in, you know? Well, yeah. And something that I was, Oh gosh, here's our confession again. I remember, (laughs) I remember really, uh, do you remember, uh, you know, having to uh, do those drop the needle, uh, uh, test in oh, music yeah, history no, yeah, yeah. and uh, you're dating me, yourself right there <laughs> i know i know i still have heart palpitations when i think about those but um but i remember feeling like i was just having to get through the chant and and early polyphony and mm-hmm. especially keyboard music was really hard for me like early harpsichord keyboard music for me mm-hmm. that all sounded the same it was really difficult mm-hmm. to think about that until I had the opportunity to go, and I was working on my dissertation, and I had the opportunity to go to a concert in Notre Dame, in Paris, of Notre Dame polyphony. And they did mm-hmm. chant, and they did uh, Notre Dame polyphony, and, and when they were walking in, when the ensemble was walking in, doing these just chant lines, right? They're just these wonderful melodic chant lines. But it wasn't until I was sitting in that space, sitting in that cathedral, that I realized that as the chant went on, the last note that they would extend, the reverb was so long that it actually became the pedal tone of the next line. Mm -hmm. And you don't hear that unless you're in the space. And I even wrote my, (laughs) I even wrote my, um, uh, my early theory teacher at UNT who would who was teaching all of the pre-1650 and I, I said I understand I, <laughs> I I get it I apologize that I never can remember church modes and I can never remember <laughs> but it wasn't until I was in that space and you can hear that these composers are actually writing for that length of reverb, reverb. Mm-hmm. they're writing for that length of you know I, it was it was absolutely eye-opening it was eye-opening to me to sit in mm-hmm. there and listen to that that it really did become a pedal tone you yeah. know that the next line was harmonizing against it was crazy it yeah. was crazy 
that's that's great. It's it's good for students to realize that these musical examples weren't just pulled to make your life miserable, right? Like, <laughs> they weren't created to you know make twenty first century musician music students like life miserable. These had these there's these reasons why you know these composers mm-hmm. did these things. These performers oh, it did was these so things. cool, and it's it's great. That's amazing. Well, oh, this has been so cool. such a treat. Uh, Jennifer to, to chat with you and time's just flown by um, and we just love to be able to hear what you uh, have to say about how we can better you know teach our uh, music uh, vo- voice students and things like that a lot of things to think about we do like to end with a little rapid fire uh, <laughs> questions okay. and so we know you're not a music theorist by trade so we'll, oh, we'll, no. we'll do we'll do some uh, <laughs> softballs don't expose me <laughs> don't expose me oh, you've already been exposed uh, so, yeah, I mean, at this point. By my own volition. <laughs> uh, so, Jen or Ben, do you have a do you have a question first? I have one. Okay. All right. So, what is one thing that you learned in a written music theory class that you use when you're teaching your students in private voice? Um, how how to pull apart rhythm. Um, I had a really great professor that really showed us a shorthand, especially for rhythmic dictation, that I still mm-hmm. use. Um, I still pull apart my own music, and I show them how, how to pull apart really complex uh, rhythms. So that's mm-hmm. what I would say. That's great. Ben? Mine's minor do or minor law. Law! <laughs> That's a singer's answer. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Just make it easy on us, okay? <laughs> that's, that's a good answer. It's still a good well, answer. Well, and that's interesting because all of my singers who are not um, native to the United States say, um, uh, say do bass minor. Or, um, or sorry, the other one. Yeah, fixed do. They're yeah. very fixed, mm-hmm. fixed do if they're outside of the United States, so. Yeah, just another tool, just a tool in just, your tool belt, right? Just not Definitely. numbers, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> I actually That's did numbers in one, undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. You had numbers in undergrad? Yeah. Yeah. One, three, five, six, five, four, two, seven, one. <laughs> oh, no. I know. Oh, uh, it got really messy with accidentals. And so. Uh, I know. How yeah. would you? I don't know how you would cope. One, one. Yeah, it didn't work too well. Um, <laughs> so my question is, um, as a professional vocalist, um, what would be your just advice for theory people who are theory, te- teaching oral skills or sight singing who are not singers and maybe some advice on how to use their voice best or kind of ways of getting over maybe their anxiety because maybe they're a mm. pianist or a, a trombonist or something like that some kind of advice for for those folks who might find themselves having to teach sight singing but they're not singers I think I think be really brave. I think that students are more forgiving than we than we want to give them credit for. I think be really brave, sing out. I think the way that you sing, whether it's it's you know the, of high caliber or it's it's passable, the way that you sing will set the precedent for how they will feel about their own singing because you're not going to be in front of a whole class of singers. And if you can feel confident um, in being able to sing out, sing strong, um, and and just be okay with what comes out, first of all, that's going to strengthen your musculature as a singer anyway. So that's going to improve your singing anyway. But also, you might be in there with... Uh, you know, with a, a percussionist that's not asked to sing hardly at all. And if they mm-hmm. see someone who feels confident enough, who is having fun, who um, is as much as we, you know, singers still do this too, but they're not self-conscious or at least less self-conscious um, about their singing, then you're going to help them to open up and give it a try. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you sing out, be okay to fail in front of them um, and show that you're human and that that we all can improve in whatever. I think once we all realize that our talents might be different, mine might be singing, but if you had me, <laughs> if you had me play horn, it would be really bad. Um, 
But that's why we come to school all together. I think that these classes, both theory and oral skills, are unifying in a way that we get to see who's who has wonderful skill in this and who's struggling and that we can be in that in that process all together. So I think that would be my my suggestion is sing out, sing strong. It's it's fine. It's it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. I, I love that. I remember my very first intro to oral skills class I taught. I was so nervous just to like sing really? like mm-hmm. just like the, a scale, a major scale. I practiced it. And I mean, like I sang growing up and in high school and in college I sang. But like I'm not a singer. But man, I was so nervous. And then I was like, they're going to know, you know, they're going to know I'm playing singing things wrong. This was an introduction to oral skills class. They had no idea what was going None. on. <laughs> they're like struggling to match pitch. Right. In that class. Yes. Right. I was like, okay, it's not going to be so bad. It's going to no. be okay. <laughs> getting over that anxiety. Um, it can be a challenge sometime. Oh, I would have never thought of that. Mine would be playing in front of them. You yeah. know, if I had mm-hmm. to play the if I had to play the, the three or four part dictation, that's what I would be practicing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, we all have different skills, but this has that's been right. such a treat. And so, as we wrap up, maybe let our listeners know where we can find where they can find you and um, on the internet and any kind of projects that you have coming up um okay let's see well i'm coming i'm coming on the 28th um of april to sing the lord nelson mass at texas women's university and then i'm also doing um some teaching and some choral work down at baylor at the beginning of january um, I'm trying to think if there's, as far as you can find clips of me on YouTube, Jennifer Young's with an S, yes, <laughs> Jennifer Young's. Um, and if you look up Jennifer Young's soprano, you'll find clips of me on, on YouTube. I don't really have a website. I probably should. Um, but yeah, I, um, as far as other, other projects, I have other things coming up. Oh, maybe I can announce this. Um, um, I am singing Rhoda Linda with the American Baroque Opera Company there in Dallas at the beginning of February downtown. Um, at, at the, I think we're at the Wiley. So um, I will be cool. back in the DFW area um, there in February singing some good old handle. Um, and that's kind of <laughs> what's going on. Music you can really lots. get a grip on. Oh, boy. Oh, no. <laughs> So those are some of the projects that are coming up. I've got lots of things that are still in the works, but um, I I can't announce them quite yet. But um, those are those are some of the great things that are that are coming up. And and yeah, and and then I'll just be hanging out here at BYU doing my teaching. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.